yeah welcome aruna and it's Hi. a great pleasure to have you here i i really appreciate you taking the time and joining us on the the cg pro podcast um for everybody joining us uh, this is aruna uh aruna is a creative director and visual effects supervisor at uh, digital domain um, he's had an amazing career as a vfx artist and supervisor and has worked on some amazing projects over, over the years in a variety of different avenues from movies to tv vr um, and games and all kinds of different things working on some great projects like um Eleficent, star trek and hellboy and the, the list is enormous go check out his imdb it's, it's, it's a lot of scrolling um also yeah i've been uh, done a lot of speaking and mentoring and teaching and all kinds of cool stuff um so yeah it gives me great an author as well yeah if i didn't mention that um yeah so welcome aruna great to have you here cool thank thanks ed um it's it's awesome to be here and just talk about industry and talk about humans and and how you know we got into this thing right how do we how we started and and where we're going and just the the trials and tribulations of vfx in, in yeah. both film and tv and real time and ar and VR, you name it right like it's becoming really prevalent these days visual effects on any screen right so yeah, yeah it's it's really you know kicking off and and been it's bigger now i think than it than it ever was poking out into all these other industries that weren't really focused on computer graphics before right. now uh, it, almost everyone seems as interested in computer graphics now. Um, yeah, no, well, why don't we uh, start at, at the beginning where, when you kind of joined this oh, crazy sure, industry yeah. and like how that happened for you? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So many years ago, probably like 25 years ago now, it seems, uh, in the 90s, you know, wow. um, I, was, I was in school, I was doing uh, uh, a bachelor program for aerospace engineering. And uh, it was a four-year degree, but I was I was very not wanting, not focused on aerospace. It was it was four years too long, four-year degree. And uh, I really wanted to really get into the industry, get into some sort of industry very quickly. And I was always interested in 3D. Uh, and so back then uh, there was an advertisement in some magazine, I don't remember which one it was, but it was for an ad for the Vancouver Film School. And this was mid 90s, like nothing's out there. It kind of piqued my interest. And so I, I, I ended up applying to the Vancouver Film School and coming to Canada um, back in 97, 98 and started their program that at the time was called Digital Animation and 3D, uh, 3D Animation and Digital Effects. That's what it's called, 3D animation and digital effects. Now it's visual effects, but I think at the time it was very new. And when I got in, it was a class of 24, and we were the 10th class to go through it. And they had classes starting every two months. So very, very aggressive, aggressive uh, learning, right? And the program itself was 10 months, right? right. So we started in, in 97, end in 98. And I, I started doing 3D. Like I had a background in uh, 3D modeling using Power Animator back in the day. And then mm -hmm. eventually, as I went through the course, the, the visual effects course, I gravitated towards compositing. And one of the reasons why was that 3D was really slow at the time. You model, you render, you wait three days, and you get something. 
and it doesn't look right. And so for me to get into compositing was a way for me to scratch that itch of being of doing something quickly and and making it look really good. And so little did I know that's was called compositing. Right? That, you know, that's what I learned there. And I was like, I want to do that because I'm in charge of the final picture and I can just move pixels around. I can make it look as good as I want to. And then that's the thing that's actually going to be shown to the public. Right. And so I started going into compositing, going away from 3D, my background in 3D, and starting to do a lot more kind of 2D compositing, layering effects. And that's kind of where we started doing green screen layouts and actually shooting stuff on high eight and, and, and film and building up a student reel that way. And so I started doing that uh, and became a compositor um, straight out of school, really much doing an internship program at a small company and then became a full time employee there. Uh, for three years doing uh, discrete Inferno Flame work, which now is, hmm. is I think, I forget who owns discrete now, but um, started doing that. A lot more client-facing work, which which was really helpful working with other VFXs at the time on shows like Outer Limits, um, uh, X-Files, uh, oh, there's a bunch there, Stargate, you know, so a lot of the stuff in my early IMDb history has been working on that. Um, and I was fortunate enough during that time around 2000, 99, 2000, to be nominated for uh, two Emmys uh, for, for Stargate. Uh, and that was one of those things that, you know, Showtime was the provider for that. And they had never gotten something like that. So they sent us all, they, they sent us all down to LA um, a, as a nominee. And so that was kind of great, you know, in 2000, That's cool. So that was really awesome. Kind of my first two years doing something cool to be recognized by both the Academy um, and my peers to kind of be nominated in this capacity. Uh, and I was there in Vancouver for a little bit, uh, doing a lot of TV movies of the week, episodics, uh, a lot of interactive stuff with clients, you know, back and forth on all the flame suites, uh, having them sit behind my shoulder, you know, move the pen around, make it blue, make it green, and then it goes somewhere else to DI and they make it gray, and doing that way, right? Um, and then from there, I really wanted to kind of get into features. And at the time, mm -hmm. in early 2000, we didn't have features. You know, a lot of that was in L.A., in the Bay Area, um, and a lot of my peers, it was getting kind of, not stagnant, but at a certain point in your career, you want to grow, right? And I was hitting a yeah. point there um, about three years in where I just needed to do more things, start to work with film, not just TV. TV at the time was captured on 35 millimeter film, and then it was scanned in, and then we worked on it, and then we put it out, and we put it on a beta cam. And then that was shown to the public. But we actually scanned film for the episodics for Stargate and all the other ones. So I did work on film, not finished the film. Um, but then I wanted to kind of work on real films to actually go into theaters. And a, a bunch of peers went to Australia. And so I went with them and we worked on uh, Ghost Ship, which was the first film that I worked on. Um, there was a smaller film that we worked on in Vancouver called The Sixth Day. We did a test for that. The Sixth Day is that uh, clone film with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. I remember that from back in the day. Uh, but we did a test on that. We didn't get it. And so I was like, you know what? I want to work on a real film. And we went to Australia to work on Ghost Ship. So that was really fun. Um, at the same time during that year, I also worked on the Santa Claus 2, which was interesting. So two films in one year at the time in 2002. It's kind of a game changer for me. Um, did that, came back to Vancouver. Did a little bit more freelance compositing work for a number of different uh, movies of the week, A Wrinkle in Time, Max Q, some of these stuff from 
really 2002. Uh, and then I was recruited by a company in the Bay Area called Tibbet Studio, who's still around. And that was to come work for them for Matrix, Matrix 3, Matrix Amazing. Revolution. Yeah. And um, I had seen the Matrix in the theater, and little did I know I'd be able to work on the third one. Um, That's so, I was so really cool. excited. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the matte painter that was down there at the time, we worked together um, in Vancouver. So he said, Hey, you need a compositor, come down here. So they hired me in the Bay Area at Tibbet Studio to be a compositor for Matrix 3. And so this is where kind of those connections come in, right? Be able to talk to peers and see where things are. And it was a small enough industry that if you wanted to go someplace, you could. You could say, okay, yeah, I'll go down here, freelance for a little bit, or you know, work for a little bit of time on a specific show. That's what we see in Vancouver now. We see a lot of these places, even worldwide now, that people jump from show to show because they want to work on those things. You know, especially when you're young and hungry and you can do that, you know. Um, yeah. So I, yeah. So I, I did that for a, a number of years at Tippett, uh, working as a compositor, lead compositor on a number of feature films, like you mentioned, Hellboy, Matrix Revolutions, Constantine. Uh, a lot of really great iconic compositing um, was done there. Some really great stuff. Just toss everything in the kitchen sink in there and make those comps your own. So that was super fun. Um, a lot of effects heavy stuff. Not so much digital human stuff right now. I mean, there was some creature stuff in Constantine. We did a lot of creatures. Tippett's known for creature work, so we did a yep. lot of like, the Constantine creatures, the Sepulvites, um, Hellboy, there's a lot of Hellboy himself, and a lot of those creatures in the first Hellboy uh, we did, and they were all digital characters, you know. Um, and then I, I moved down to LA and did uh, started doing more compositing um, with DD for Flags of Our Fathers. That was my first show uh, in LA uh, for Digital Domain, and I was a compositor there. I came in uh, fresh and learned Nuke because it wasn't out there yet. Nuke wasn't a, a publicly available Yeah, it was their software. software at that point. Yeah, it yeah. was their own software. And so it was really great to kind of learn to use Nuke, but also be pivotable, pivotal in its development, right? Yep. Being able to like talk to the, the, the software engineers and say, hey, this is what we did when we used Flame. Can you put that functionality into Nuke? And so those software engineers would go back into their corner they do some things, and then the next day we have a new build of Nuke that had that functionality in it, which was really great to see that level of, you know, make your own compositing package and make it really cool. I think it's very similar to what RNH did with Icy, you know, and be able mm. to make your own compositing package that takes all those passes in. We saw that with Sony as well, um, and so it kind of did that, and that's kind of where I've been. You know, I've been at DD for fifteen years. Wow. I think that's amazing. Time. Yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> I just grown with it, right? So it's it's been really it's been really quite fun to um to grow with the industry uh, and and right now really be um be able to to help define where we go at the company. You know, being able to see where the future is. You know, see where real time's going. See where humans are going, and not just in visual effects. But we talked a little bit about this earlier, where digital humans, a number of people around the world, big companies are starting to kind of develop their own human, right? And figure out where that's going to go. So that's fun too. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Just going back to the, the beginning for a second again, was there like a, um, I know you saw that the course that was available and there was a path, but was there like um, something in the entertainment space that really inspired you and, and spoke to you and kind of made you think like, this is what I'm going to do? Yeah, I, I got into this 
because I wanted to make miniatures. Right. I was a big model making guy when I was much younger, you know, teenager, preteen, and I made models and I'd film the models with a friend's video camera uh, and do that type of miniature stuff. And I, I started doing that as a child and then right, child, stop motion, stop motion stuff. Yeah. And then, yep. and then also just, just models, just like flying and, you know, um, a cruiser through the, through like the forest floor and filming it low, like doing exactly what they did in the films to mimic speed, right? To mimic miniature speed. And one of the pivotal shows at the time that really gravi that I gravitated to was Movie Magic. Movie Magic was a was a series in, well, in the eighties and nineties, if you remember, where you know they just went to places and showed how they made movies. They oh, cool. how they showed miniatures. Um, it it was a really great uh, great show. Um, I don't know what channel it was on, and it, I'm sure it's on YouTube. I'm sure if you type in Movie Magic on YouTube, you'll get a bunch of series. Um, I'm not sure if we got that in the UK. Oh, <laughs> but it, it, it's 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 wonderful. Um, at the time, it might have been on PBS or something back then, uh, public uh, broadcasting. Uh, but it was one of those things where I I saw what people were getting paid to do, the Harry Housens and the Tippets of the world, right, making miniatures and filming them to to make a storyline. And so that's what I really gravitated, gravitated to, to do filmmaking and, and make films and make miniatures for those films. And then it was only later that when I got to Vancouver Film School, I'm like, okay, visual effects and compositing and putting miniatures in is really great. I, I was lucky to be able to work on some miniature films during my career, which was really awesome because now we don't get a lot of physical miniatures. Not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Some people are still really keen on on practical and miniatures, and awesome. I know they I mean, did some of that work on Mandalorian, even where they, even even on their making smaller models and then scanning them in and then using them in in game engines, which is yeah, yeah. kind of a crazy workflow. Yeah. It's it's awesome, and and you know a lot of a lot of the feature you know film directors still use that. I mean Nolan is yeah. one of one of the most famous ones, right? A lot of people still use them. Um, because it, it gives that tactile nature and you kind of have to plan ahead to a certain degree to shoot it on film, right? Because you got to make the miniature, prep it and build it. And then once you shoot it, you're, that's it, you know? So um, it's really exciting to still be able to physically make things. You know, there are a couple of companies in town that still do that, New Deal, Legacy, you know, there's some places that still do these miniature stuff and they're amazing. You know, I would love to be able to kind of get back on the box and do some composting on that. Like, yeah, I, it was similar for me. You know, I, I really wanted to. I loved making things when I was a kid. I loved like building stuff out of nothing. I didn't have many toys, so I had to kind of make a lot of them and constructing stuff out of cardboard or just bits and bobs I found lying around. And I, re I originally wanted to get into movies as well, doing practical. But then I think it was similar. Just visual effects had kind of really beaten it in terms of the amount of work available or the what was being done. Um, no, so true. similar, similar story. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the really great thing when I came down to um, to the Bay Area to, to work with Tippett because Tippett was a traditional model making place. Um, and so being able to go into their into the stage where they shot green screen, blue screen, being able to see all the maquettes and the miniatures that they used over the years, you know, to be able to see Ed 209 towering over the stage and Robocop's miniatures, you know, the AT-ATs from, from, from Star Wars, just to be able to see those physical miniatures, um, and even the models themselves, just for scanning and, and, um, and uh, digital scanning, you know, like uh, the, the crazy 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you know, uh, that Tippett did. And just seeing that miniature that wasn't, wasn't in the film, but just to see that maquette made as a proof of concept to sell the product, the project was awesome, you know, to be able to do that. Um, we have some of that stuff at DD2. You walk through the halls yeah. of DD, you see, you know, the Apollo 13, you see the Zorg building, Flostin's Paradise. You see all these really great miniatures. And with a traditional digital release and digital recreations of models now, you don't get a chance to physically see that anymore. You know, um, that's kind of what I miss is the physicality of the model building process. And they're so popular when you think about it. Um, when I traveled back to the East Coast to go to the Air and Space Museum, they've got close encounters of the third kind there, the, 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 the spaceship from, from that in the Air and Space Museum. So there's a there's that's a cool. there's a there's a, there's a reference for that in, in pop culture history, you know, and people that haven't seen this film, like that's the miniature from the film. And it's really quite cool to see, you know. I, I love it too. Yeah, I definitely tripped when I uh, when I walked through Didi. I've spent a bit of time there and seeing all of those models is just I, I yeah couldn't help but kind of hover over them and you know spend a while just staring at them because there's there's so much detail in them. It's, it's quite yeah. uh, fascinating. You don't normally see that, and the ILM as well. And the, That's right, they, they don't have half of it on display, but there's a lot of it there. The inner space ship and Ghostbusters and some really cool stuff. Yeah, I'm really hoping that, you know, with a VFX museum, if it were ever come to pass to have a VFX museum, to have those at a repository yeah. to see, because there's some really great things and to be able to see the, the scale of them, you know, just to, you know, like yeah. when, when Lord of the Rings was out, right? Like just to see those bigotures, those massive sets, like that's really special. And and yeah. you, when you see that, it, it's it's impressive, you know, now if you want to see something, you got to unarchive it, and then you have a digital model, then it's digital. You can't really do anything about it. But now, I guess, when, you know, with 3D printing, you could print it and make it, but it's not the same. It's after the fact, right? It's nice to see yeah. that before it goes into the film. Yeah. I, I thought, uh, I don't know what came of it, but it wasn't George Lucas building a museum in LA? Yeah, I thought so. I don't know how far it's gone, yeah. but it was on. It was near Museum Row. That's what I heard. I heard it was going to yeah. go to Museum Row, but I haven't, I haven't heard. I haven't followed it in... A, a couple of years because you know COVID took over. So. <laughs> yeah, maybe that maybe that stopped it, paused yeah, it for a while. For sure, yeah. But that that sounded really really cool. I remember seeing the design for it. The the building itself was looked like a work of art. You no, know, it did. Yeah, that's right. That was really cool. Yeah. So I'm. Um, yeah. So that's kind of you know seeing the doing that the background, seeing the miniatures where they're going, and and that's what really got me into the space um, and trying to push forward on on all aspects of that. So. Amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe now um, the equivalent, they may be able to create some kind of virtual museum and have some of these digital things hanging in space and not quite the same as being able to, obviously you can't touch them anyway, if they're real, but you know, maybe somewhere close to it, being able to go through some kind of virtual museum. In that'd the be future. interesting. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. I think, you know, as we see VR, hopefully, make a bit more impact and you know being able to say that vr is not necessarily just a way to consume media uh but it being a way to have an experience is going to be more fruitful it's going to be more beneficial to people that just want to have an experience right as opposed to watching something you know traditional media 2d film you know you watch it and you're engaged in the story and that's it's a story and it's there and you experience that but what i've always talked about with vr um, is is the ability to have an experience 
right? To be able to actually be immersed in something. Um, and it doesn't have to be necessarily photoreal, but to have those emotions come through is very, very exciting. You know, we see little, you know, quick times and, and little memes about people putting their VR headset on for the first time and going down a roller coaster, right? And these are the experiences that stick with us. And so I think, you know, as VR matures, as Apple gets into it, as other these other companies get into VR and AR, we're going to see the ability to make experiences really powerful. You know, and that's going to be you know, five years away. You know, it's going to be pretty, pretty, uh, pretty quick before we know about it, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's exciting to see. I know there's uh, some the people are, are you know fifty fifty on the way that it's rolling out with Facebook and it being attached to accounts. But the, what they are doing in terms of being getting it out there at a good price point, I think, is fantastic. And more, yeah, having it, it more people up. getting access to it. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. You know, I mean, you know, Zuckerberg took a two billion dollar investment. You know, and people thought it was the beginning of it, but. I think now in today's age, everyone wants immediate gratification, right? And so they're thinking it goes in, it's ready to go. But there's this entire development cycle, especially for hardware that takes time, you know, and software takes time. And, and so we just see those little bits and like, where is it, where is it, where is it? But, you know, back in the day, it comes out, it's ready to go, but it took five years to get there. So I think we're seeing this incremental improvement. But if you talk to somebody five or 10 years ago and you say, this is what you have now, You've got a VR headset that's all-encompassing, wonderful resolution. You can use your hands instead of controllers. It has a pass-through connection. And it's, it's amazing, right? When you think about the, what the Oculus Quest 2 really is, and you try to talk to your, you know, decade-old self, you know, 10 years ago, that it's coming. But it's yeah. here, you know? So it's, it's amazing that we take this technology for granted. Um, and it's, you know, visual effects is helping drive that, uh, you know, Real time is helping drive the adoption of this stuff, you know, and so it's really exciting to see this happen um, in real time, you know, and helping me helping drive eyeballs to that, you know, and helping make content for those types of experiences. So it's it's really exciting. Yeah, it's it's cool that you've um, yeah you've been involved in in VR uh, quite substantially at, at DD. Long time, yeah. I mean, I I started. Um, about six years ago, I started trying to get into VR, um, and this was predominantly on the backbones of the DK1, uh, Oculus's DK1, when it was first put on Kickstarter, and being able to see that and say, okay, this is where it's going to go. It's the C3 DOF, the C6 DOF, um, and move forward on that. And then when Facebook saw it, or when Facebook bought it, you're like, okay, something's really happened here, you know, when, when they put that amount of money behind it. And so just jumping on that, doing visual effects and creative development for VR experiences, not just movies. I mean, we started, do, we, again, this trial and tribulation of, you know, starting slow, like what is a VR show, right? How do we make that show? And there's a lot of hurdles that people stumbled across. We stumbled across it. Um, and you get kind of this mediocre thing. But the ultimate goal in VR is not to have necessarily a 2D playback screen. It's those experiences that are immersive that allow you to move around and explore. And we're starting to see that now uh, uh, quite a bit, you know, and fidelity is only going to get better. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool to see. So I'm, I'm glad to be here kind of six years in and seeing where it's been uh, and helping drive it forward, you know, kind of see what we can do to help drive it forward, which is really cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to uh, tell us a, a bit of uh, well, what you can say of what you've done uh, oh, sure. yeah, over, yeah. The, over the years in VR? Uh, so um, let's see. So when we started uh, the division at DD, uh, it was probably 2015, 2016, and VR started to get really big. Facebook bought it, and there was a small team at DD that wanted to do it. Uh, and we had a number of different projects come through the house. You know, um, excuse me. The one I worked on the very beginning that kind of helped start it all was uh, the Neymar experience, the Neymar Junior experience, uh, and York Stone Milker, who, which Jackie knows about. Like, so that those particular projects, those two projects, kind of started DD on this path of creating not VR experiences but VR movies, right? The Bjork Stonemilker experience was with Bjork, and she filmed it in Iceland, and we got the plates after they had shot it. Um, but it was a stereo experience of Bjork on the beach with multiple versions of her singing and dancing. So it's a music video, yeah. right? So it was just a music video, um, but it was new. It was exciting. It had never been done before. And I like doing things that have never been done before, because if you fail, at least you say you've tried. And yeah, haven't, right? So it was great to go into that project having no idea really what to do. Nuke didn't have its VR bits yet. Right, right so yeah, Carol didn't exist then. Yeah, yeah, so we had to build a lot of that stuff into Nuke uh, using gizmos and RTDs, built a lot of things to help unwrap spheres, stereo composite stuff, put them back. It was a, it was a real beast um, <laughs> to do that, you know? And then, of course, there was a commercial that came in. Again, these commercial agencies want to do something exciting. Right, so the Bjork Stolmilker thing, the music video was really exciting, and then the Neymar Junior experience was another one um, that was that happened. Who I want to say in 2016. Uh, that's when kind of when we started. Um, but it was your your Neymar, and you're playing on a soccer pitch, and it's an ad for Nike's new shoe. Right, so uh, the VFX supervisor at the time, she had come to me and said, you know, I have how do we do this? What, what, what can we shoot on set to make this thing work? And I was like, okay, well, we should run a test and see if we can do multi motion, motion control, multi camera capture to be able to be able to composite all of this stuff together. And I ran a test on our mocap stage with a motion control system with myself as a stand-in, other people as stand-ins. And we did a rudimentary test to see, hey, could we do multi-pass compositing with motion control in 360, right? To be able to focus and be able to set the, the film back of the camera as you move, there's no parallax or where you put the camera in space on a pivot point, you don't get parallax between the foreground and background objects. So a nodal, a nodal pan, as you, as you, as you uh, would, would say, right? And so being able to shoot multi-pass compositing on our stage as a proof of concept uh, and be able to show that to the VFX suit and then showing it to the client say, hey, this is how we should do this. This is how we can totally make this work, right? The great thing was that it wasn't stereo, even though I wanted it to be stereo, because goodness, that would have been crazy difficult. But we were able to do multi-pass compositing um, with 360 footage. And so uh, at that time, she took me out on set to Barcelona. We, we met with Neymar, we met with his people, the agency was out there, and we started doing multi-pass acquisition of this 360 piece, this minute long 360 degree piece where you're the POV. And so you can imagine when we're on set, we have, you know, 
a giant camera system, an, an RE, was it an RE? Might have been an RE. Yeah, it was an Alexa, one of the small Alexas, right? Mounted with cameras on the side to get stereo disparity so we could see where things were, so we could roto things out. Below that is a, um, is a 360 camera, is a, is a 360 camera, just for reference of where things are. And all that, that 300 pound mechanism was on a wire system like you see at football games, right? It was suspended on a wire system on this massive green screen, green screened warehouse, right? So you can imagine the soccer pitch, it was about a quarter of that size. So it was a really big soccer pitch. Uh, and that was programmed with a motion control system. So this giant head would be the head of, of Neymar and the soccer players, each of the soccer players would be captured as a different pass. And this would be a repeatable motion through the soccer pitch, right? So you can imagine just doing traditional motion control um, and compositing. We're doing this now with a 360. And so the, the crazy thing about this is that this stemmed from uh, my, my work in trying to figure out how to do it, right? And so to actually see this thing come to life was really amazing. And so we have this Ari, right, move along this motion control path, getting really close to uh, soccer players that didn't want a 300-pound freaking camera barreling in at them. Uh, and doing that for every single portion that you see in the commercial, right? One wow. thing we didn't realize is that this giant head that's suspended from this wire system that's moving at 10 miles an hour around tilts. Yeah. Right? The, the, it, it, it's, it's just there's so much weight, it rocks back and forth, right? And so we get all that footage back, a number of different, uh, you know, getting all the compositing done, getting the roto done. There wasn't, a, there wasn't en enough light on set to actually pull the green screens, even though we had green screens all around. Multi-pass compositing, 3D crowds all over the place. It was really quite intense to actually do that. It, it cost a ton of money. Um, and it was one of those things that I was really, it was really fortunate to be on that show to see what we can do with 360 uh, commercial making, right? Um, and nobody knew about this. The agency didn't know how we were going to pull it off. We didn't know how we were going to pull it off. Like, let's make something cool. And we did. And so that was really great to be. So the following year, we got nominated at the VES for this. So we got nominated for uh, Outstanding Special Visual Effects in the Venue. There was no VR category. I don't even know if there is one right now. But it was, it was, just, a, it was just one of those things where you put all this stuff into this bucket and you see what comes out at the other end. And so now we can say that, yeah, we've done this. We know how not to do it next time. Or it's so expensive, you don't want to do it in this way. <laughs> we, right, learned, yeah. we learned learn so much, right? We learned so much about how to shoot 360 multi-pass plates, you know? And that's helped anytime that somebody comes through and says, I want to do a 360 show. And the question will be like, you know, pre-rendered, monoscopic, stereoscopic, six-dof, three-dof. There's all these questions. And... Um, you know, I can help answer some of that. Like, how do you want to do it? What's your delivery? Where's it going to go? Uh, so it's really great. And of course, that comes along with the price tag. It goes up as the more degrees of freedom you get, and the more real time it gets. Uh, so it was. It's great to to have, to have had that experience um, five years ago, because not a lot of people have had that. You know, to be able to see that. Um, and then from there, we we've done a lot more. We we did a lot more at that time of doing this type of 360. Um, uh, film filmmaking. You know, the following year I went to Thailand. I did a music video 
for a Chinese artist uh, that was also multi-pass compositing on a nodal head, a cartoni. Um, so we could pan and tilt, capture all the data. And that was the VFX on that. That came brought back and we did all of that really great stuff. So, you know, that really helped the baseline that those in those years, four or five years ago, to, to where I am now to say, okay, you don't want to do that that way. You're going to waste time, you're going to waste money. So that's really informative. A lot of people that start to do 360 or getting into 360, um, they, they haven't had that experience, so they have to start lower, right? And so to be able to see that ahead of time, to be able to get in front of the train, to be able to really push that forward uh, was really pivotal to my career and to learn about 360 as you start, right? You gotta, you gotta crawl before you can walk, you gotta walk before you can run. And that was my, that was my, uh, my path because that was also the only way really to kind of get more onset experience, right? Because right. a lot of the onset experience goes to um, the effects and compositors and people that have a connection with the production and there's a there's a hierarchy right of people that can get to a VFX position, especially at certain companies. Uh, and so, me being really gung ho about it to go in and start to do VFX supervision in 360 was not necessarily to do 360 all the time, but yeah. it was to get on set experience, to get more on set experience, to be able to go and help direct the director, help inform the director, help inform the rest of the crew um, on how to shoot this stuff. And that's just help me progress as I go into more VFX for traditional media, um, as well as VFX for real time, which I've done for a number of years now. And that's all of that is seeing where the future of technology is in five years and seeing how I can manipulate my circumstances to meet that demand in five years. Right. So a little bit of foresight, yep. a little bit of technology and just a lot of learning, you know, a lot of failing too, right? a lot of failing. Um, and then, you know, hopefully people don't see all the failures, but they see all the successes and like, how do you, you know, that's really exciting there. So you, yeah, a combination of your kind of timing and your passion and willing willingness to take those risks and be the person that, that gave it a go and didn't take the kind of well-trodden path. You kind of took the other, the other path and, you gotta try and it out, paid right? off. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, there, there's another multiverse out there where I go right back into compositing, right? So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> luckily, this worked out really well, um, and I, you know, I was, I was, I was given that opportunity by the company, by DD, to be able to kind of move out of it because they needed somebody to do it. Mm. Uh, none of the other VFXs at the time wanted to do it. You know, they were working on feature films, but if you have an eager person, if you're eager enough to say, you know, no one's doing that, I'll try it. What's the worst that could happen? You fail, but at the same time, oh yeah, I can still go back to composite. I can still do traditional media. It's just another avenue to learn, right? And it's great to yeah. learn on the job, for sure, you know, and be able to tell that to clients. Like, you're trying something new. We may fail at this. Do you want to go yeah. down the path with us? And so if they know that it's new and exciting, I mean, that's part of the department I'm in, right? New media and experiential. But to be able to kind of just be able to be upfront with clients and say, hey, you know, what you're asking has never been done before. Do you want to invest the time and money for us to help work through it? And right. we know very quickly if that's if they want to do that or not, right? So yeah. yes, <laughs> some of them have the appetite for it, and some of them are like, "No thanks." That's no right. Yeah. I'll just do that like that. And how I know what I get before. That's fine. <laughs> awesome. And an uh, exciting time at, at DD as well. I know that uh, VRLA was kind of birth there that the big conference in vr that was that began right. on that mocap stage as a meetup and then became this huge right. conference very quickly 
Yeah. No, um, so, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. No, there, was, um, there, was a, there was a great um, panel I was on for VRLA many years ago, like three or four years ago now. And uh, it was a panel called From VFX to VR, I think it was. And I was on the panel with Ben Grossman. Um, right. And we talked about how to transition from visual effects to VR development. And that was really interesting because a lot of people in the audience um, were VFX artists and they're trying to figure out, well, they had the foresight, they wanted to do more VR, more real time. And so we had a great conversation about how I transitioned, you know, what it takes for a compositor to make it into VR, what, you know, all these other things. So I think it's great. It's unfortunate that I don't know if there's been another VRLA about that. I don't know if they're still having it or not. Um, but it was really great. To, and I think now it's definitely more like VFX to real time. Right now it's like, yeah. how do I get into real time? How do I learn? How do I incorporate my skill set as a VFX artist or somebody that's just starting out? How do I make those inroads into real time development? Because it's another world. It's Absolutely. Another world. And, it, and also the subset of which is VR as well. It's brought yeah. VR with it. Um, well, so maybe I can ask you that question for anyone out there who's curious about getting into um, what is, I guess, commonly called virtual production or um, whatever it will become. Um, that's what kind of kind of the umbrella for what uh, people are describing it as what what um, from VFX to to virtual production, what's your advice? I think there's there's a number of different avenues to take to get into type of this type of virtual production, this type of VFX into virtual production. There's a lot of jobs that I want to say that are in virtual production that some people don't know about, right? I mean, people know about the development of, you know, you've got to put on an LED wall if it's an LED wall, but virtual production is not just LED wall stuff. It's also what I see when I go out on a mocap stage. It's actually being able for a director to put on a VR headset and see that world, you know? That's what Steven Spielberg did when he was shooting Ready Player One with us, right? He was able yep. to put on the headset and be able to see the garage, right? And be able to move things around. That's virtual production too. It's not necessarily just on an LED wall. So for those types of technologies, you, you need different types of skill sets, right? You, you, you can definitely be the artist that makes the content, the, the, the walls and the, the buildings and the cars, but there's also somebody that has to engineer that thing, a software developer, a TD that actually has the glue to do that. You know, to be actually say, okay, what are we actually showing onto the VR headset? Is it an Unreal project? Is it a Motion Builder project? Is it a Maya project? How do we deliver that to the headset? So there's a tech, there's a there's a TD role there as well, right? Then there's kind of like the programming role, of like okay, well, if Steven Spielberg likes this take but doesn't like the take after it, but we move something, how do we get back to that position, right? How do we move that thing to the exact position that it needs to be? So there's kind of this this production role too of like, okay, this object moved five meters this way, that's recorded in some sort of system, whether it's a digital system or pen and paper, right? To, to know where the order is, like just production work, right? Um, so there's that. Then as soon as you start to add these other complexities, okay, now it's just environments. But what if you wanna add motion capture artists? All right, now you need somebody that knows kind of the motion capture suits, whether it's Vicon, Xsense, OptiTrack, you name it, you know, there's a number of Coco, there's a number of motion capture suits. How does that data get transferred into Unreal or Maya or whatever thing or Motion Builder, right? So that director can see it in a headset or see it on an LED screen. So there's a technology there. So if you're really 
interested in motion capture, if you know how the Rococo system works or how motion capture data is transferred from one place to another, that's another great way to get in to be on set to learn about these things, right? Um, and then of course it goes same back. You got to know what the what what's being transmitted to be able to record that, so that when you send that out to a vendor, say DD or some other, but they know exactly that take with that time code corresponds to what Steven Spielberg saw in this particular scene, right? So there's all these all these levels. Um, on mocap, but we haven't even talked about the LED wall stuff. This is all just digital data transfer, right? And then that's just bodies. If you want to do facial capture, there's so many different types of facial capture. So if you know, you know, face wear, if you, you know, we, we have techno props helmets, you know, we have marker sets, we have makeup, we, we have a lot of different types of technologies. Um, and each of those technologies require somebody that knows what they're doing with that specific part of the process. Like a not a lot of people know all of it, but if you're the best facial tech, you're the best person that puts on makeup, you're the best person to know or track facial dots onto a digital head. Those are very important parts of the role for just that little section. So there's lots of really ancillary things in a virtual production world. Um, and of course, all of those now that Unreal is releasing some of that with 427, a lot of those technologies are becoming, people can use those and, and test their knowledge and learn about that before it even becomes really out there, right? A lot of the a lot of the big companies are so big that a lot of the people that are already working for it don't get a chance to test these technologies out. Right? And so they need dedicated people like, okay, what's in 427? It's moving so quickly yep. that I don't know all the things in there, right? And so be, to be able to go in and dive in when people have time to actually look at what 427 provides us and 5.0 provides us, that's really helpful for these bigger companies that are looking out and trying to hire people that know that, right? Or done productions or done even independent things. Like, oh yeah, I know 427. I've done this, 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 and this on it. Like, that's great. We need somebody exactly with that. So we're going to see a lot more of that. And it's not just, like I said, not just going to LED walls or VR or AR, but it's just the process and the pipeline from getting visual effects data into Unreal. You know, and the tool sets are becoming way more powerful. Um, and I talk to compositors all the time where they want to do something in Unreal, but there's no direct correlation, right? Like I'm a compositor. I came from a compositing background, but I don't composite in, in in Unreal. I can't do that. So what if I if I were if I was not a VFX supervisor, what I would I do? There's lighting, there's look dev, there's sequencer, you know, there's lots of ways to assemble and make things look good if you know color, right? If you know color, that's really imperative too. So when yep. you start to work with color, and you start to think about unreal color science and then, oh, wait a minute, now i got to put it on an LED wall. What's the, what does the LED wall give me? What's the color on the LED wall? And then what's the color coming off the LED wall captured by another camera? Yeah. Is it visually perceptible? Or if I start to crank the colors after I get it off the wall, what does it look like? Right? So there's, there's a lot of really cool, interesting little uh, disciplines um, that big companies want to, to dive into and have people. And, a lot of people that are already employed at these big companies don't have necessarily on the box time to learn it, you know, and so it's up to people out in the audience, you know, other people that are really excited to work after hours to work on their own to figure out, okay, this looks kind of cool. I can make a, I, I can make a living doing this little part of Unreal and I know big companies will want that. They may not want it now, but they will when people want to do virtual production. They want to do LED walls. They want to do another Mandalorian. They want to do more of those things. And so they need the right people to tell them what they can and can't do. Um, effectively, you know. So. 
Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. It's yeah, really interesting how how fast it's moving to so to fast. your to your point. And we we have a, a school and we teach Unreal for filmmakers in right. it. And um, yeah, trying to keep up with the the innovation with Epic's uh, an interesting thing to do for sure. Yeah. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, definitely some great advice there um, in terms of how to. Uh, how to get in whether it be from the traditional route and using those skills and leveraging them as well as diving into some of these niches and some of the some of the areas seem to have more demand as well because of a, a lack of supply partly you know or, or just there's more opportunities in it but uh some some areas that have a, a lack of supply i know there's people are always looking for good tech artists um to to glue the things together yeah, and it's and it's and not color just VFX. as well. That's right. It's not just VFX when we talk about it, right? Unreal and virtual production and real time development is not just for those types of deliverables, mocap sets and virtual production walls, but Arc Arc ArcVis, right? There's there's um, medical science. There's all these things that still yeah. require real time development. You know that are that that are in, in games, right? They're all lucrative, um, and there's all a niche that needs to be filled. Um, in real time, you know, for, for those positions, right? So yeah. it's exciting. It's going to be in a really exciting, you know, three to five years, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities in other areas. The, the industry has effectively expanded a lot since this stuff came along. It's no longer just the domain of film and TV and games as it was for quite some time. Now there's pretty much every industry has some application of this. That's true. Yeah, no, it's really exciting. And, you know, I'm working on a on a wonderful uh, project uh, that is all real time. That's for for games. Right. Mm -hmm. So seeing this this uh, this kind of consolidation, this merging of both game development and film development. Right. Because the games industry is wanting more feature film, more quality in their artistry and Feature films are wanting stuff quicker and more real time. So yeah. there's a really great merging of both the films industry and the games industry. And the people that know both are poised to really reap the benefits of it, to be able to learn, to be able to provide insight, both game companies and film companies about how to shoot stuff, how to make things, you know? Um, so it's really, it's really cool. Those massive industries of film and games are, are really coming together. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be part of it right now. I've been working on this thing for two and a half years, so I can't wait till it comes wow. out. Wow. Yeah, that's long. That's a long, a long time. time. Longer than anything we've had. So yeah. I saw something else I know that you are passionate about that um, you've worked on for some time is the the area of digital humans. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk to that a little bit. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, Whatever you're allowed to say, anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. There's <laughs> a there's a wonderful uh, talk I gave. It's 40 minutes long. Uh, I did it. I gave it in 20. 18, I think, and it was the history of digital humans. Uh, it was called Event Driven Performances, and I gave it at GTC, NVIDIA's Graphics yeah. Technology Conference. Um, so if you guys haven't seen that, you should take a look at that. But I go through the history of what DD has done on digital humans, starting from Titanic, right, uh, and moving forward into, into Orville Redenbacher and Benjamin Button, and then into Thanos, and then into our real-time development thing. And all of these are incremental improvements. When we talk about like always fail before you succeed, I mean, that's what DD's been doing for the digital human world for, uh, for 20 years now, right? 
um, and seeing what we failed on with Orville Redenbacher and seeing the, the, the fruits of the labor being transmitted to Benjamin Button two years later um, and getting an Oscar for that, that's really exciting. So, you know, there's always failure before success and it just depends on how public you want to make those failures, right? Um, so it's really exciting. So I've done a lot of that from, from that. I wasn't on Buttons, unfortunately, or Tron. Um, my first kind of digital human work was on Maleficent uh, and creating the Pixies uh, and being able to to um, really get into the um, development of realistic digital humans starting from an actor scan, right? It's really great to see that coming from an actor scan and, and pushing forward the digital human side on that front. So I see, and we see a lot of this happening with technologies companies these days, right? Facebook Reality Labs is one of them, Epic's another one with their MetaHuman stuff. We're seeing people really want to push digital humans to the forefront. One, because it's the expressive, expressive nature of humanity that connects us through these screens, right? And we're doing some really great stuff for um, a, a product that we call Charlatan. Uh, and it's out there on, on DD's YouTube page where we do a, a number of like replacement faces, things like that. Um, and combining that is really quite exciting. There's, I think there's something on FX Guy that we did for Free Guy. Um, we did it for Lombardi. We've done the charlatan process um, to create believable humans um, uh, through the history for these for this short time. This is like six months old stuff. This is technology that's six months old, uh, and we're really pushing that forward. So I can see digital humans and our personification in both the VR and filmmaking to be able to convey our emotions um, more effectively with your own avatar, right? We see some of that with VR chat. We see some of that um, getting that through. And when I'm in VR, I'm talking to a friend and they have the hand controllers. You know it's them because of the way they move. You see me moving my hand around. You know it's me, right? So to be able to have that that digital that digital representation of yourself, you know, eventually, um, and seeing working with actors that have their own digital representation and just selling them like this is you, this is you at this point in time. Like with Doug, like uh, Digi Doug was made on on Doug Robel, and he's going to be that age forever right. in the, yeah. the world, right? So that's really exciting, and you know, you'll, you'll, you're never really going to die. You know, because your digital version of yourself, you could be 80 years old and you have your version at 30, you know, and that's that that's like it's 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 wild to think about that. You know, we have a, a question on it. It's coming sure. from the listeners. Um, uh, will will digital humans ever be practical as online avatars? I for for users, I think so. And here's the reason why. Right. Probably everybody that's watching this is on Facebook. And so you have all your photos uploaded to there, some photos up there, but there are of you with selfies and all that stuff. So right now, Facebook as your, your photographic self, right? And we've seen technology that takes a 2D picture and makes it move, right? So you can imagine as you upload your data to whatever social media site you have, that data is capturing your, your likeness from different angles, right? What do we do with photogrammetry? We capture your face from different angles and different lighting conditions. So Facebook and possibly Google and other companies that are big are getting this data of you in three dimensions, whether you know it or not. 
right? They're getting the lighting, how your skin reacts to how in, in every outside, inside. So they're getting their own photogrammetry session from users like us. And you will be able to, you know, a couple of years from now, I'm sure, use your digital photos that they already have, and you'll have your digital avatar, whether it's in Oculus Quest as a static head, right? Or it will be smart enough, what, you know, what we're doing with machine learning to be able to move your mouth and you can see it move, right? We know that a lot of the, the new Quest stuff, the new Oculus stuff has lower facing cameras to capture your facial motions. It's also got eye tracking inside the headset. So it sees where your eyes go. They're also working, if you haven't seen it before, but they're working on pass through. So people in the real world can see your digital eyes through it. The very uncanny stuff. So all this technology has come together. So whether we like it or not, there'll be a version of us that is digital in some form, whether it's a three-dimensional version of us or a 2D avatar of us that we can use, you know. Um, so it's coming. And just right. where you want to be. If you don't want to be it, just remove all your photos from Facebook. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or, like, or they're already else. making your avatar with you. That's like right, it yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty in, insane, especially with machine learning and knowing there's not a lot of human componentry to that. The programming makes it, and then, you know, if I turn this light off, it gets, you know, if I turn this light off here, right? Now it knows what my light, my face looks like from this angle, you know? So it's really quite interesting that it captures the shape of your face and how it moves. And it, it, yeah, there's lots of smart people behind the scenes making it work. Another question that's come in. Um, so it's a question about kind of the, the naysayers of, of VR, like I guess as, as VR kind of rapidly increased in its, um, popularity and then kind of came back down again. Um, the question is, what would be your rebuttal to those who say VR never experienced that needing tipping point? Um, is it a uh, proliferation of headsets across the consumer market that never really happened? What, uh, what would you say to people? That, uh, I, yeah. I think, yeah, so VR is exciting to me because it gives the opportunity for people that can't go places that opportunity, you know, to be able to travel, like you put it, you put it on, you can go on Google VR and go to any place in the world and see that place. You're not there, but it opens up tourism. It opens up abilities to see stuff that you couldn't see. So that's really amazing. Um, the ability, and, and I think we're seeing this now. I mean, Oculus Quest right now has sold 4 million headsets, which is insane. It's a lot. Yeah. And then not only that, PlayStation has sold just as many with all their PS5 VR things. So there's a market out there. Now, what we don't know is what the killer app is, right? We don't know necessarily how people are going to do this. And, you know, I thought COVID would be part of that, part of that transfer to VR. And we're seeing that now. What we're doing right now in Zoom is a precursor to doing all of this with, within a world. And that comes along with the digital avatars, your digital self. You know, there's something that Zuckerberg did I think it might have been with Oprah or somebody where they were both in, in VR. And it was super awkward. But you can imagine that that's a case where once you get the mannerisms of your face, once you get your emotions coming through to put that headset on, one, once it's high fidelity enough where you can actually just type on a key, keyboard and see you know, the world in front of you, multiple monitors, multiple resolutions, pushing and pulling, it's a new paradigm of, 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 of communication. And I think that's what people are so gravitated towards, you know, when the iPhone came out, came out in 2007, it came from a Blackberry with independent buttons and more complicated 
to something that was a flat slab of glass. It changed the way we communicated with each other. You know, before pads, you know, the, the, the typing pads were becoming bigger and bigger and the small was becoming smaller and smaller. But now we all have six inch, you know, phones in our pockets, you know, and it's all tactile. So when we think about VR, it's the next step of communication. I think, you know, um, you know, Snow Crash and some of these other things, you see this metaverse coming, you see Fortnite, it's, it's already here, right? We saw yeah. that with this march on the, the march in Fortnite, you know, um, to be able to have these experiences, you know, they have a concert in there where it's not just people in the stadium, but to have this interactive experience with a bunch of people around the world, that's super exciting, right? And when we think about it, it's not just for America that we think about, you know, VR being being kind of interesting, but when you think about, you know, Asia and, and other places where you don't have a huge amount of space to go outside, you don't have a place to call your own, you put the headset on, you put your VR goggles on, you're somewhere else, right? So for, for condensed urban environments, I see escaping to VR as a place where you can just be yourself and be able to have the experiences that you couldn't have in, you know, an eight by 10 foot box. So I, I see it's, it's, it's going to be there, man. It's, it's, I think we had thought that it was going to be here when Facebook bought it because they put in so much money. But there's all this, like I mentioned, there's all this hardware development, there's all this software development to get to that point. We have to wait for chips to be fast enough to be able to process this, right? You know, um, now that we're seeing the Quest 2 being able to get that video feed from your, your computer is great, right? You don't have to have the CPU power on the headset itself. So you can imagine when Apple comes out with their VR headset, none of the only thing that's in the headset is like gyros to figure out where your heads are. All the commutation is going to be on this, right? And it's wirelessly broadcast to your headset. So they're going to get big, they're going to get smaller and smaller and smaller, and it's going to be here within 10 years, right? I, I feel like it's going to be something that you're going to want. They're going to be sexy enough to put on your head. And we see that now, right, with Ray-Ban and other people putting cameras in, Google Glass 3.0, right, just to do like Snap glasses, like Snapchat glass. Like I don't know why you'd want to broadcast your life, you know, through your glasses, um, but I think it's a way for people, for companies to gauge the reception of it. You know, and when, the, when, the, when the snap glasses came out, they were a hit, right? Like everyone lined up to get their Snapchat glasses to be able to broadcast their lives. So I think this is the second step of that, Google Glass 3.0, you know, um, Apple Glasses 1.0, but now if, if anybody were to do it, Apple would do it right. And they would come out and make it sexy enough for everyone to buy it. So it's coming. Hopefully awesome. that answers question. <laughs> you, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, we have one more question. <clears throat> Somebody's asking um, about digital humans, mm -hmm. or what are the implications of deep fakes, in your opinion? Which um, I guess you know something about. Yeah. So anybody with enough time can make a convincing replication of. Uh, of anybody. So you have enough data, you can make anybody, which is really both scary yes. <laughs> uh, and exciting at the same time. And here's why, right? This opens up another avenue for a niche. And here's, here, there, are two, there are two things. One, if somebody makes a deep fake and it gets put out there, people have to be educated enough to figure out how it's a deep fake, how, you know, 
there's some great stuff. There's some great deep fakes out there, right? The, the Tom Cruise stuff is really amazing. There's some really impressionist stuff that's really amazing. Um, and it's sold on the novelty, right? Mm-hmm. We've also seen this to uh, a kind of a, a detriment, but it was given with permission where Jordan Peele did it with Barack Obama, right? When you saw, you saw that deep fake and that's the scary part of it. But at the same time, it's going to need people. And this is just another kind of job that's going to come in. It's like, how do we figure out the deep fakes from the not deep fakes? And one of the great things about learning about deep fakery is that it always needs some sort of source footage, right? So if you can find the source footage, you found the deep fake, mm. right? So there's a lot of this technology that we just have to learn. Like, again, humanity is stupid. And so we've got to figure out how to best prepare for the inevitable humanity that will say everything's real. I mean, we're seeing that now, even with real stuff, right? Real footage, you're like, he never, he never said that. Yeah, he did. So besides that, you know, there is going to be a giant deep fake hurdle. Luckily, within entertainment, we always have the, um, the great, uh, I should say permission, we have the gr- permission from all the people that we scan or, or from these states that we work with to use their, their version, their digital version, their 2D version in the propelling of, the, um, of entertainment. And I think when coming to DD or any big company, actors and artists should be comfortable in bringing their likeness to us because we're a big company. You know, we're not a government agency. We're not somebody that's in their garage doing it. And so we would respect, you know, the wishes of an actor. That's just how businesses operate. That's not to say that a nefarious government, you know, corporation or whatever else would use that for nefarious purposes. And it very well may be. And I think it's it's up to us to learn about those deep fake options, how to be able to educate our peers and educate people about what is truly real and to always back it up with, with what some sort of source or proof or this is how what this is why it looks real we see that with visual effects when photoshop came about right you know and even part of my job as a compositor is make everything look like it was shot in camera you know so luckily you know our industry is very adept at making fakery but at the same time because we know how to make fakery we know how to deconstruct it we know what looks wrong and so you could go work for the NSA as a deep fake expert if you wanted to and like know how to build it and know how to protect yourself against it and help give that to the people. There's always going to be people that just don't believe everything they read, believe everything they see. That's going to be wherever and you can't fight that. Um, yeah. But the only thing is to be able to give as much information as you can out to the world to make people make their own choices and say, OK, I know why it's fake because this is the source footage that was shot three years ago. And now there's a new one doing the exact same mannerisms with the same tie. Right. So, yeah, there's other stuff that we're doing. Deepfake detecting. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't think the U.S. government's doing that or any other government's figuring out how to detect deep fakes or making their own. Yeah. They, they, yeah. They, it's, it's, it's really scary, but I think it's, yeah, can't be a composite all day, all the time. Exciting and scary. Yeah. <laughs> Good way to sum it up. <laughs> well, uh, we were coming around to the hour mark, but um, before we wrap i just wanted to um like on any good talk show uh, you have just published a book and yeah. i would love i'd love you to uh just tell the, the folks sure. um about your book sure so you know going through 
and failing before succeeding. This book is a culmination of possible failures, but I put it out there. Um, it's a book that's been five years in the making. I put it on sale last December. It's now in paperback. Uh, next week, it's going to be on Audible. Uh, so this book is a science fiction story about everything we've just talked about, which is really interesting. Digital humans, mechanical technology, AI, machine conscious, automatic driving cars, you know, all wrapped up into a time travel story. So it's, I, I think it's really exciting. You guys should definitely check it out. It's called Enclosure. It's on Amazon Kindle, uh, and it, it's in paperback as well. So check it out. Um, let me know what you think. Uh, again, it's seeing the, where the future is going, and this story is a future story about where technology is. There's this giant corporation that knows everyone's everything, and how do you escape it? How do you escape from? How do you become anonymous again? I think that's going to be very valuable in the future too, and how science fiction helps drive science technology. Right? We talked about this a little bit earlier, Ed, about like the pads from Star Trek becoming iPads now, the communicators, the flip phones, all this stuff, all this technology is all, all the is, is coming to the forefront. So um, take a read uh, about it. I think it's really exciting. People that have read it really liked it. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's short, it's 200 pages long, something like that. You know, you can get it done in maybe a couple of days. Uh, but yeah, not for well, me, but you know, probably taking six months. Yeah, you can always <laughs> wait for the audiobook and listen to it. The audiobook takes about five hours to listen to so far. Um, and that's going to come out next week. Uh, I'm going to put it up Amazing. on all the social media channels. So be sure to check that out. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, you bet. So if you, yeah, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, then buy Runa's book <laughs> right now. Um, Absolutely. And, and we can, we can. Oh, you just broke up, Ed. I couldn't hear you. Uh, we'll we'll you. share some we'll share some links uh, to it in the Facebook group, and and I'll do our best to uh, to share that with people. Cool. Um, is there any other anything else that people can check out to find out more about you, or any um, art stations or Instagrams or any of that? You can you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com okay. Rooney R zero zero N E E. Um, that's probably the best way. I'm pretty active on Twitter here and there. Uh, Instagram, I don't really post on Instagram, uh, but Twitter's probably the best way. LinkedIn, I'm always on LinkedIn too, just seeing where other people are up to, seeing where technology's going. Um, those are probably the, the two best things, Twitter and LinkedIn, to see what, what I've been up to and where we're going. Uh, I post a lot uh, of what DD has done too. So DD has their own social channels as well, um, but I post separately both my own stuff and DD stuff. And I wish I had an art station, but as a VFX suit, it's really tough to find time to make art. Um, yes. I can write. I write. So, you know, that's my output, yeah. writing. So That's amazing. Uh, well, I'm impressed that you've managed to do that. And uh, thank yeah, you. thank you. Thank you for sharing that with everyone. And um, yeah, I just want to thank you again very much for, for joining us here. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about this and just hearing your perspective on this, you know, the crazy revolutions that are going on yeah. in, in content and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. Anytime. Thank I'm you. always happy to be on. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Thank you guys. Thanks, Aruna.